Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech and a regular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, tech, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter. It's a weekly email that covers important shifts in marketing technology. People who work in the world's largest media tech marketing companies read it. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Okay, today I am joined by Sydney Sinclair. Now, Sydney is a creative director at HBO Max, where she has built and led um, a number of diverse teams of storytellers and designers and creative to actually launch HBO Max streaming service. Uh, but Sydney also previously worked as the art director at Apple um, as one of the founding members of the Apple Music brand and marketing design team, as well as uh, lead global content and marketing initiatives across Apple TV, Apple Books, podcasts, gifts cards, and the list goes on, including the relaunch of the Apple App Store as we see it sort of today. Now, Sydney also uh, serves as a, a mentor and an advisor for a number of boards. So she supports the Plus Me project, also as a mentor at the T. Howard Foundation and the ADP List, all organizations that really help support young people um, to get into the industry and, uh, and find a career path. Now, if there's anyone in the marketing technology industry who knows how to inspire creativity in some of the world's leading brands, it's Sydney. And today we're talking exactly about that, the rise of creativity in the tech sector, but also the crisis of it as well. Why and how marketers and brands lack the ability sometimes to actually bring novel ideas, differentiating ideas to market. Um, what I call the great blanding, where you see a lot of enterprise companies having um, not a lot of um, inspiration when it comes to how they do their marketing on how they actually drive customer experience. And we're also going to talk about how Sydney thinks about the creative process in the enterprise. And now I give you Sydney. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, so how about you give me a brief introduction to yourself. Tell me what inspired you to get into this world of brand marketing and art direction and what led you to the tech sector specifically? Sure. Yeah. I, I consider myself a designer first and foremost, and I likely always will, but my interest in tech started very much earlier in my life. I was born in San Francisco. So I was growing up um, in very close proximity to Silicon Valley and I'm a millennial. So I really came of age alongside the personal computer and the internet. Um, as a child and a young teenager, I was really quickly interested in web design. I may have pirated Photoshop 5 on my family computer, and uh, I taught myself HTML. And for me, this is just like as natural as drawing a picture or playing with my friends outside. I was just doing it to make graphics and honestly, MySpace layouts for me and my friends. Um, so it was all for fun. It wasn't until I started thinking about college and my career as I got older that I really realized that the things I was doing were actually valuable to other people. <laughs> so I went to traditional art school in San Francisco, which was a battle in and of itself, a story for another day. But I had an emphasis on graphic design and this was the early aughts, you know, early 2010s. So startup culture was still huge and it was kind of this wild west. Um, you know, sidebar, like all these dramas coming out about the time period in tech is a little bit like an out-of-body experience for me because this point in my life felt really crazy and it was just this playground. And of course I was in my early twenties, so that probably 
has a lot to do with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, tech was just where the work was as a young designer living in the Bay Area. And it really interested me. So that's that's how I fell into it. And I have to ask you, Sydney, were you part of the MySpace generation? Were you one of those people who are designing the crazy MySpace pages? Um, I'm not sure if you remember those back in the day. I certainly yeah. was. Um, you know, <laughs> that's where I learned HTML was sort of, you know, getting those sort of crazy emojis on the on your MySpace page and designing a background and all that crazy animations, you know. And- oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you also, uh, this was before, like, most of the browsers were blocking, like, automatic video and music. So every time you went to someone's MySpace page, it was blasting Blink-182 or some, some emo <laughs> band. <laughs> it was a fun time. I mean, um, I, I remember back in those days, how how freeform everything was. Like, I think that was this sort of edge of from web one to web two, where you had these really sort of like the, the tumblers and the MySpaces and even sort of the GeoCities where there were sort of social networks, but you also had this layer of sort of uh, kind of infinite um, uh, creativity you could do. You can sort of customize almost everything, which also led to pretty bad experiences as well. You know, I remember, oh, absolutely. Uh, of course, you know, getting <laughs> 102 blasts in your ear or your whole family hearing about it because you're sitting on your family PC, you know, um, that's uh, very <laughs> hilarious. But I, I do agree with you that, you know, back in the sort of early 2010s, it was a wild west and there was a lot of creativity. Those sort of some of the biggest brands we see today in terms of Uber, Airbnb, were all founded in that period. So uh, what a wonderful time to be working and, um, and doing a creative work in that space. And I guess I want to start with more of a philosophical question. Given that you've been, you've seen through a number of really high profile creative projects and you're working with some of the biggest brands in the world, um, I want to talk about the topic of creativity in itself. How do you define creativity in the context of your work and how do you actually know that something is quote unquote creative? Uh, how do you approach that? Oh boy, that's a big question. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people, when they think about creativity, they think of it as an attribute and in binary terms, like either you are or you aren't creative. You hear this a lot in offices, you know, like go ask the creatives or, oh, he's, he's a non-creative. And I, I honestly really resent that. Um, I think that whole idea puts us in these boxes that is just bad for business. It's not good for collaboration. Um, you know, ultimately creativity isn't something that you are, it's something that you do. Um, so in that sense, anyone can practice creativity. And that's sort of the backbone of design thinking and design thinking, I believe is the way that we come up with innovative ideas. But in terms of how do you know something is creative? Uh, oof, that requires an agreed upon definition, which I'm fairly certain doesn't exist. Um, but when I think about it, I, I would say it's a bit like love, um, which might be a little strange to say, but we all describe it differently and it means something different to every person, but we all agree that when we feel it, we know. So when the question of, is this creative comes up, if you feel like it is, then it might be. And if multiple authorities on the matter feel like it is, then it probably is. <laughs> mm-hmm. In the world of, I guess, like data science and measurement and math, that might be an ambiguous and infuriating answer. But when you enter the world of creativity, there just isn't one perfect solution. It's really just this, uh, it's a process of using your imagination and continuously reframing problems, exploring all conceivable angles, and coming up with many paths before you decide on 
which solution to try first. Mm. Yeah, I, I think just to touch on a few things you mentioned there, I think how you explain creativity in the context of love actually resonates with me quite a bit because I agree. I mean, if I look at the experience, say, um, so I've been married for almost 10 years now. And I remember the first time I told my wife I loved her, we were at this sort of in Melbourne, Australia, we've got this sort of Bay area where you can overlook the city. And you know what? Uh, there was a first time we were dating, we were friends, we were um, getting closer. And then I just came out and said, hey, look, I love you, right? And I said that and I felt it. And then she felt it as well. And it was just an experience. Um, right. And, but in, in the same way uh, as I approach even the Martek Weekly in the newsletter, um, I, won't, I wouldn't publish it. I, obviously, I'm writing commentary week to week. But when I'm getting to a point where I'm like, this feels good, this feels important and it feels right, it's almost the same sort of experience, right? It's like, it's something that happens. It's not something mm -hmm. that you do. It happens to you instead of happening um, by you, if, if that makes any sense. And I think I totally resonate and agree with your point there, that it's as a, uh, not just yourself, but consensus with your team around, yes, this feels right. This feels appropriate. And we feel good about this. Let's go. And I, I think that it's the, that is highly emotional, but also it's a lot more based on your judgment as well. But talking just second point about um, design thinking, and, and I'm a big advocate for design thinking. Um, almost every sort of strategic project I will pursue, I will use design thinking principles. I typically look at things like we'll often spend a lot of time diverging before we converge on a solution. And I think that's often what a lot of people in the MarTech world sort of miss often is this idea of, well, you need to explore options. Um, some people call it, I think Dave Perel, he talks about um, the idea of beer mode and coffee mode, right? So beer mode is like, let's, okay, we've got this problem or we've got this thing we're trying to achieve. Let's look at all the options. Beer mode is like, let's have some fun. Let's bandy around ideas. Let's get in a whiteboard. Let's actually, let's map out. Let's do, do divergent thinking. There's no bad idea in beer mode, right? You're just having fun. And then when you get to coffee mode, it's like, okay, there has to actually has to be something that has to be produced. Something has to go out to market. What is that thing? All right, coffee, 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 caffeine, caffeine, caffeine. Let's get moving. Let's get going. And I think that idea of sort of divergent, convergent thinking has, I think over the past few years has actually been a great unlock in how um, leaders think about creativity in the place of their business. But perhaps just to circle in on that one a little bit more, how have you seen that sort of design thinking process? Is that how you come to understand it and how you approach it in your work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I think about design thinking, I think about this sort of expansive exploratory phase where you're exploring every single idea that comes to mind based on whatever it is, the problem that you're trying to solve. And so to your point, you have this sort of beginning moment, this beginning phase where you're just trying everything and every and anything. And that's really the only way to come up with innovative ideas. You know, I find that the first couple ideas that you have about any given problem are probably the most obvious ones and therefore, you know, maybe not the most novel or creative. Um, and it's kind of getting to the, to the meat of things through this kind of tangled exploratory moment that that is how you produce something really great. Mm. And uh, we're going to get to this question a little bit later in the episode, but we're going to talk about process and the wrestle of doing that because it is a wrestle, a wrestle. It's not 
uh, a straight line. It's a squiggly line with a bunch of details and um, things that don't go right, you know, and it's, it's very messy. But I often think that creativity is embracing that mess um, often in your work and being comfortable with the fact that you're going to get a ton of things wrong. And a lot of those sort of initial solutions, as you mentioned, are, are going to be quite obvious as well. But you have to go through that process. But we'll talk about that um, a few questions down. But I want to talk and, and zoom out a little bit and um, talk about a, perhaps a state of creativity in marketing and tech um i want uh to understand a little bit more how you would explain some of um the creativity in the scene at the moment you know what are some great examples of marketing creativity um what are, and also what are brands doing today that are just frankly boring and bland you know um, i've got a few examples of my own but how are you seeing the industry at this moment yeah i mean there's still there's great stuff out there and you know, the first kind of examples that come to mind, you know, Twitter came out with this campaign earlier this year, and it was all about manifesting with this tagline, tweet it into existence, which mm. might be a bit new agey for some, but it resonated really well with this Californian. Um, basically, what they did was they resurfaced tweets from various celebrities and athletes talking about how they were someday going to make it you know, before they had their big breaks, of course. And then Twitter juxtaposed the tweets with beautiful photography, showcasing each of these individuals really in their element today. And I just love stuff like that, where you're humanizing the product while also being inspirational and inspiring and building community, which is really what Twitter is all about. Um, you know, the other example that comes to mind, which I probably shouldn't say, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's a previous employer and competitor of HBO Max, but Apple TV Plus uh, came out with this ad with John Hamm, which I think is a great one. Um, you know, the streaming landscape is something that I'm quite biased about, but um, what I'll say is all of us as streamers lean into our content for our marketing because that's the reason anyone's going to sign up, right? But what Apple did is they created this really funny narrative about John Hamm being jealous that he's not in any of the shows and movies on the platform while ranting about all of the great actors and you know, the talent that is on the platform. It's super clever, a uh, very different way of showcasing the breadth of their content library um, than any other streamer that I've seen on the market, including us. Lastly, I would be remiss not to mention the New York Times just because it, it's possibly my favorite campaign of all time. It's certainly my favorite right now, but it's not new. It's the Truth is Essential campaign from 2020. It was so, so, so well done. Um, you know, they touched on kind of every single emotion, thought, and experience that we all had during the pandemic from heavy racial justice to, you know, lighthearted sourdough baking and everything in between. They were really able to weave in real headlines and imagery and the sound design was incredible. And, you know, I've got to be honest, I truly hated 99% of the ads that were out there. They're all essentially about the pandemic at this point. Every time you turned on your TV or opened your computer, it was just something about staying inside and building community while being separate. Um, and I hated it. Uh, but this one I could watch over and over and over again. It was so good. And of course it's marketing. Their whole goal is just to get you to read their paper. But the message that truth is essential was really one that we all needed to hear in those moments, especially you know in this age of social media and misinformation. So it was really powerful. Give it a watch if you haven't seen it. Um, in terms of boring and bland, 
that's easier to spot because it's generally most ads. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't want to call anyone out, but what I will say is that in my experience, there's, there's a significant number of people in the marketing industry with low risk tolerance. And what I mean by that is they're only interested in running what they've seen before because they feel more confident it will quote unquote work. And this is dangerous territory, in my opinion. You know, by operating this way, you'll never have an innovative, groundbreaking campaign because you're already doing what everyone else is doing. And you're failing to differentiate yourself from your competitors because you're probably just copying their strategy. And you're probably not even copying their strategy in a way that is effective because you're only seeing a small piece of it that you're copying. This is how you kind of get back into this like, weird feedback loop in marketing where everyone's doing the same thing and everything's looking really homogenous and the consumer has no loyalty to any of you. And, you know, honestly, why should they? Like, if you're doing this, you've given them zero reason to care. Mm. So when we look at the brands that are really doing it right, every piece of their marketing is living up to a singular brand promise, right? Every ad is supporting their identity. They're operating with their North Star in mind regardless of what their competitors are doing. And I'm not saying don't do competitive audits because of course you need to know like what the competitive landscape looks like. Mm -hmm. um, but too often I've received briefs that are something akin to, I saw this email come into my inbox, let's do this. And that's a boring bland brief <laughs> and a boring bland brief is going to yield boring bland creative. So what's the commonality across those three examples that you raised? I mean, you've got um, you got elements of surprise within that elements of risk. I think you mentioned with Twitter, there's also the element of, you know, it's a little bit risque. It's a little bit new age, right. But also deeply mm -hmm. resonates with um, a segment of their audience. And then you have elements that really emotionally connect with the, the state of things. Like the New York times example is really great because it connects, it resonates with both the lighthearted sourdough baking trends <laughs> over the past two years, but also the, the issues of today as well and how it impacts the day-to-day -day of Americans. So, and then even with the Apple TV example, you also have a really brilliant way to introduce the catalog of uh, what they're offering, um, which kind of makes sense because they're challenging a new domain, which is streaming. So, you know, all of those examples, you know, perhaps there's no commonality. There's, there's elements of surprise, there's elements of connection, there's elements of education within all of that. But even if I could touch on a few examples from myself, there's an example I have from a small brand, which I talk about a lot. And I don't know why exactly, it just resonates with me, but there's this brand called uh, We Are Not Strangers. Um, and what they do is they sell playing cards and the playing cards are designed, they're kind of like cards against humanity, but like a positive version where you're actually doing this card game to get to know somebody a bit better. Um, but they have this email marketing campaign. So this is a startup, right? They sell on Shopify and it's a great little brand, but they've got this email campaign that they do, which is literally the most insane stuff I've ever seen. It's one line of emails. Sometimes there's not even content in an email. It's just a subject line. Sometimes there's a question in the email and it's yes or no, and it'll take you different directions. Sometimes it says, you know, and it's more targeted towards um, uh, women than men, but it says like, you know, just a reminder that you've got this today, bestie, Like that's all it says, you know? And to me, I'm like, this is just a really, really different take on email. 
me personally coming from a world of everything needs to be personalized the, you have to have the certain structures in the email here's a brand that's breaking through and literally generating generating pr from their email campaigns because of how differentiated it is and how weird it is as well um some of them are hilarious i, I don't know how many times i sent screenshots and sent them to dm groups of like hey this is a funny thing from the same company but also you know even talking perhaps a little bit about web3 and that i think there's a bit of a cambrian explosion of creativity in that space like even look at board apes yacht club you know they were able to create a law and a narrative around these profile pictures of monkeys effectively to the point where you know they're making a 95 margin on every transaction and some of these transactions for literally a jpeg and nft and we won't get into the discussion of that particular sector but effectively you know that whole space is incredibly creative like if you can get somebody to buy a image of a monkey for millions of dollars at some uh, in some instances yeah, got to be doing something creative there. But the I think the element, the driving force behind that project is the creativity itself. It is the art direction behind the Board Apes Yacht Club. And it's all of the spinoffs that happen around that. You know, you've got Paris Hilton who said that she's got a board. She bought one of the Board Apes. You know, you've got um, all these celebrities. Snoop Dogg, I think, bought one as well. So you've got these different celebrities who are obviously participating in this sort of creative um, endeavor um, and buying into it. And so I think that's a really interesting sort of novel way of thinking about creativity. Um, but also I think on your points about the, um, I think the, the, the way we think about creativity in business, I think there's, I think you're right. There's a lot of challenges there around, you know, okay, this company over here is doing something really great. Let's just go and do that. You know, it doesn't make for a great brief. doesn't great make for a great starting point, but often that's what happens in the executive team. They, the CMO or, you know, the head of art creative, you know, these people, they will see something and then they'll hand that down the chain for it to be executed instead of actually pulling their team through a creative process and perhaps using that example as one element of inspiration. So I think that you've really touched on something there that really encapsulates some of the challenges around creativity. And it all starts with that divergent thinking and the inspiration for putting something new out into the world. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about into this area of uh, MarTech and being really data focused and really technical and how that has sort of really evolved in the marketing space over the years. You know, I definitely think that marketing has become a far more technical and complex discipline than it was previously. Um, you know, brand marketers have to think about integrating with so much more things now these days. Everything is very data driven. We've got more accessibility to hard data around what customers are doing. Are they signing up? Are they converting? Are they spending? And I think this actually changes not just the work, but how we think about marketing and creativity. There's this great quote from Rishad Tabakawala. He's a, an advisor for a number of large brands, uh, but he also writes every week about digital transformation. And he has this fantastic quote, and I might read it out. He says, as we all fixate on forging things with the scalability, math, and plumbing of data, a case may be made that true wealth and joy are being sculpted with the specialness magic and poetry of creativity so i want to ask you um how have you approached data and technology and you know what um rishad says the mathematics of marketing in your own practice is there a dichotomy still that exists there between creativity and being sort of a data-driven marketer and how do you navigate that uh, what does that look like in your work yeah absolutely i mean when you think about 
creativity and marketing. I think that the need for creativity and marketing has increased significantly over the last few years. You know, we live in an increasingly connected but frenetic world. Like the internet is an insane place when you really think about what it is. It's absolutely crazy. Um, you know, Bo Burnham has a great song about this, but we have a massive amount of content that we produce and consume every single day. It's hitting us at all angles. We're busier than we've ever been. And we have more choices than we've ever had. We all have ADHD and consumer attention is a scarce commodity. You know, at the same time, we have businesses that are touting that they're customer centric and, and they should be. But more often than not, what they mean by customer centric is that they're heavily relying on data and targeted campaigns, to your point. And I don't mean to say that data isn't important. It absolutely is an extremely valuable variable. Uh, I work on a growth team. I love data. But if it's your only North Star, you're moving in a very narrow and one-dimensional direction. And then we have an entire group of people who are actively building technology to avoid what we make as marketers. So it's this kind of endless cycle of us trying to drive performance and them trying to avoid it because at the end of the day, most people hate ads. <laughs> and that's because most ads are so obviously designed to only take from us. Um, and so that's where the need for creativity comes in. You know, it's not a radical idea that your marketing and everything that you do as a business should ladder up to your brand promise, which we've, we've talked about a lot already. You know, that's brand design, brand management. We all know what that is. And your brand promise isn't, I'm going to sell X number of insert whatever product here, or I need to make X number of dollars in Q2. It's what you give to your consumers. So that shift in thinking will already kind of pull you out of that cycle of copying your competitors. Cause now, you know, you're thinking about what it is that I'm trying to give to the consumers. And then you utilize creativity to figure out how to communicate that to your audience in a way that really resonates with them and matters to them. And you do that through both looking at the data and also thinking about what makes us human. It's that emotional side that we keep talking about with all of these examples. And that's how you capture and hold their attention and ultimately gain their loyalty. And, you know, of course that's easier said than done, um, but it's really requiring all of the puzzle pieces, not just one. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there's, there's an element here of the unilateral sort of thinking around, well, the data tells us this, let's go do that. And right. often the data will tell you, especially quantitative data, right? So statistics and, and actual hard data on consumer behavior, those things will tell you the what, not necessarily the why um, often. So it doesn't tell you why, let's say, you know, customers, they're not, uh, there's a take up uh, less anticipated from a new release um, of a product. It perhaps tells you the what, I mean, some of the elements, but it's not until you actually start talking to your customers and actually surveying and doing that exploratory thinking about, you know, what's well, actually driving this, that way you get the insight that drives creativity. You know, like insight is not uh, customers were purchasing less this month than last month. You know, that's not necessarily uh, an insight. What is an insight is this is why they're not purchasing or this is their reaction when they experience a certain part of the product. And to me, that's the insight that sort of is a bit of a bedrock or foundation for creativity. But, you know, I think there's an interesting framework here to talk about as well. Have you heard of the jobs to be done framework? Uh, are you familiar with that one? I'm not. 
Oh, okay. Well, it's interesting, and I'd, I'd be great to get your thoughts on it. <laughs> um, jobs to be done is the idea that in, sort of encapsulates what you were saying before about, well, the, what's the brand value or the brand story? Like, what is the customer actually getting at the end of the day outside of what they buy? And jobs to be done is a great framework to think about this in the sense that um, you have the ability to see, well, okay, a customer has a job to do. What's that job? You know, a great example is actually, um, I used to be a skateboarder. I would go into the skateboarding shop to get new trucks and wheels and bearings, right, to, um, to upgrade my skateboard. Now, why am I doing that? Well, I'm not going into the shop to buy those things. I'm buying, I'm going to the shop to buy those things to do the job, which is to go back to the skate park and hang out with my friends, you know, and actually do tricks and learn new things from skateboarding, you know? So the jobs to be done framework is a fascinating way of sort of thinking, getting to the root of what is the job that customer is trying to achieve within the context of their buying journey or their purchasing decisions. And it really helps sort of strip away a lot of that sort of, well, competitors are doing this or the data tells us that, well, what's the heart of actually, what's the insight behind what um, people are doing and how do we actually approach that in a way that um, really resonates with those consumers? But what are your thoughts on that? I mean, was that, does that something that resonates with you in terms of a framework or um, how do you think about that? Absolutely. I mean, I 100% agree with that. I'm a little bit sad that I didn't know the name of the, of the philosophy. But yes, that is absolutely a big part of design thinking and what every creative should be or marketer, anyone should be aspiring to do. Ultimately, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of times marketing comes across as being something that is asking to take from you. Mm -hmm. And that's why people are not trying to engage with it, right? Like, you're not interested in giving your money to a skateboard company. That's not, that's not your job. That's not what you're going to do. You're just trying to go skateboard and do some tricks. And so if the skateboard company is then marketing to you and saying, okay, here's what we're going to give to you to allow you to then do your job, to do all these great tricks with your friends, suddenly you're maybe more willing to give them your money. Um, so that is absolutely the framework. It is the why. Why would someone care about your business? Why does someone care about your product or a given campaign that ultimately is going to get them to not only engage with your brand, but identify with and be a loyal customer? Mm. And I think there's an interesting sort of counterfactual to this concept of sort of brand value or brand purpose which actually Mark Ritson touches on. So he writes for the Marketing Week and he also is a professor both here in, in Melbourne, but also in England. And his, his view when COVID was really setting in back in 2020 was that if you're a brand and let's say you sell laundry detergent or let's say you sell cars, uh, the immediate temptation is just to drop all of your existing marketing campaigns and instead of doing those, do stuff that's on the pandemic. And he said that that temptation is there because of the moment, you know, the COVID-19 is changing the world. But his view was that actually, no, you should just keep something because if you've got that original view or that brand purpose and the reason why the customer purchases those things, then why would you stop your messaging? And then he did after quite a few months as we were in the pandemic, he did this wrap up of all of the ads across a number of actually, I think a lot of them were US um, consumer brands pivoting their marketing strategies to pandemic type content. And a lot of them were so bland, so similar to each other. And the same message came from a whole bunch of different um, sectors, which was, 
this is an uncertain time. This is unprecedented times we're living in. You know, we're here for you. And, you know, his view on that, and I thought was quite interesting, was that, well, that's not the, that's not really brand purpose. I mean, sure, there's a season in which that almost every consumer is going through with the pandemic. But on the other side of that, well, you're still there to sell products at the end of the day. You know, don't be so distracted by brand purpose or fitting into some sort of cultural narrative when you're actually still there to sell. I mean, I think connecting your brand to the moments of the day makes a lot of sense. The New York Times example that you cited really resonates in that space because of their role in current affairs and the season of the day. But what are your thoughts? I mean, I think that we can go a bit too far in that sort of brand purpose where we stray a bit too far away from what actually brand is there to do. (laughs) What are your thoughts? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that as long as you're kind of working towards that North Star, towards your brand purpose, then you won't stray too far away, right? You know, with the example of a car company, their brand purpose is to sell cars ultimately, right? It's to get you from point A to point B, right? Like they're, they're providing you with transportation. So for them to do a huge ad campaign about, you know, staying indoors because of the pandemic, it just doesn't make sense. Mm. That's not laddering up to who they are. And I agree. A lot, a lot of brands were immediately kind of shifting and doing these sort of campaigns about staying at home. And that I think that's probably why I went on a rant about how much I hated it, because it did feel really disingenuous coming from companies like that, who really should have just been focusing on what their bottom lines were and what it is that they can offer consumers. Mm. Yeah, I I agree with you. Um, So let's um, switch and talk about process. Now, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about this um, already, but I wanted to unpack it a bit more and understand, um, you know, every great creative team has a framework to guide their thinking. Um, and they also have a definition of ready. But how do you approach creative thinking through process? What does that look like day to day working with partners, working with agencies, working with production houses, you know, process becomes really complex when you have those um, external stakeholders, but also have internal teams as well that have various needs. And given that, you know, creativity can be so flexible, um, you know, you can have a fantastic idea out of, you get no ideas actually out of out of a half half day workshop, but then you have one very inspiring idea like myself, perhaps in the shower or when I'm walking my kids <laughs> down the road, you know, it's so fluid, but how do you wrangle that? What does that wrestle look like in terms of process and creativity in the enterprise? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And and the good news is there is a design process that exists and it's a pretty like loose framework that, you know, every design vertical at any company that you work with probably utilizes, whether that's, you know, product, web, brand, campaign work, et cetera. And it really comes down to the creative brief, whether that's something that comes from another team or is drafted internally is really going to be dependent on each individual team and company. But There's a lot of opinions about what makes a great brief. Ultimately, it's just a document that holds you accountable to the original task. And so that's really important when you're working in a creative space and you're getting inspiration from anywhere at any given time. Not every idea is going to appropriately answer the business problem that you're trying to solve. So you need that brief in order to make sure that everything stays on track. And you do that first, so that way it's agreed upon by all of the necessary stakeholders, whether that's you know, other marketing teams or cross-functional teams that you're working with. That way, everybody is on the same page about what it is that we're trying to accomplish with the creative. Then there's a research phase. Ideally, creatives 
requests from their cross-functional partners. But even with that, we're doing our own research on the side too. And that will include kind of more tactical information about audiences, competitors, the business itself, but it'll also include visual research that will inform our creative strategy. And that could be um, that we know a specific illustration or art style really resonates in a certain market or with a specific audience. Or maybe we know that certain social platforms have a user base that has an expectation and gravitates towards a specific type of content capture. So we wanna make sure that every decision we're making, even from the beginning down to the individual dot or pixel is done so with intention. It's not just about looking beautiful, although we often strive to do so. Um, it's about solving problems for the business or the consumer and answering that brief. So that's kind of like the, the repetitive thing that we come back to no matter how far off the rails we kind of get as you know wild creatives, we, we always ladder back up to that brief. And this kind of like research period, I guess I would say is very much like that early phase that we were discussing earlier. It's, it's this like kind of messy phase where we're just exploring any and all ideas. And we kind of workshop that internally using copy and mood boards, narrowing down to a few directions that we think are really strong. And that's when we'll start the rendering process. The goal being proof of concept rather than this is what every single asset in a campaign will look like. And that can include maybe a handful of core placements, but also additional ways of activating a campaign that maybe wasn't asked of us or wasn't expected. Because we wanna make sure that as creative partners, we're consistently challenging the status quo and thinking about unique ways that a campaign can be activated appropriate to the brief. And then depending on the project or the brand, this can require a pretty significant amount of versioning before you get it right. But that proof of concept is really how we sell the idea um, to all of our cross-functional stakeholders or up the chain or to clients or, or you know, however you're operating. And that agreed upon direction that ultimately comes from that process is what we'll use to move into production and ultimately build out all the deliverables for a given campaign. Um, working with agencies isn't significantly different, except in that research and development phase, sometimes that can happen on their side, or sometimes we might give them the brief with some thought starters and initial ideas that we've already workshopped on our own. And again, that just depends on the individual project. That is my attempt to make the process sound linear, um, but it really isn't. As I mentioned, sort of you explore any and all ideas. And I'm very much of the belief that ideas don't have morality, you know, attributed to them. There's no good or bad idea. So we explore all of them and that branches out sparking more and other ideas. And you get all these tendrils that get tangled together in a huge mess that then need to be kind of like extrapolated and organized again to make sense. But this is where like the good stuff really happens in this very kind of messy phase. And I think it's any creative's favorite part. It's certainly my, my part, my favorite part. And then you asked, how do you know when something's ready? Like, how do you know when one idea is the right idea? Um, that's probably the most difficult question for anyone to answer with any creative pursuit. Um, you know, any artist in any discipline, they're never satisfied. They always want to do more. And the truth is you just reach a point where you have to ask yourself, is this good enough? And that answer is gonna be not only specific to the project, but also specific to the brand. You know, For example, there's a level of fidelity and 
polish that the Nikes of the world are going to require. And an early stage startup is not going to need that level of polish. Mm. So it comes back to the brief. You have to make sure that you're answering the brief with whatever it is that you're attempting to accomplish. Otherwise, there's no point. Mm. Yeah, I mean, often it's uh, perhaps too much polish diminishes the work as well. I'm not sure if you've seen that in your own work and that you know, oh, absolutely. Much <laughs> it sort of it, then it obfuscates the actual intent and purpose of the campaign or the project. But I'd, I'd like to ask you in terms of formulating ideas and understanding the process around diverging and then coming to a point of, um, of ready. Um, what does it look like for you in terms of learning from previous campaigns or perhaps experiments? How does that work for you? Because for me, I find often that uh, that learning of what you actually put out to market is a great base of inspiration for something new because you have some fantastic insights into how consumers react to it, how the market reacts to it as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I personally, like I love focus groups for this reason. Cause then I get to hear firsthand what someone is thinking about uh, a piece of creative that I've produced, even though it's obviously, you know, it's one person's opinion. It's not a large sort of lens in, in how things are performing, but I do find it really interesting when maybe a hypothesis or something that you've assumed about a campaign is, is not met in a way that you expect. And that does often spark new ideas. Um, I'm trying to think of a specific example, but there have been many times where I've been met with like, oh, well, the data shows that this type of creative doesn't perform. And I'm just one of those people. I'm like an annoying child where I'll just keep asking why, 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 and try to figure out if there is a way to, um, you know, approach something differently in order to ultimately be successful. And a lot of times we've kind of circled back a year or two later on a given campaign, um, with similar goals, but now we have all of this knowledge to apply and, and maybe approach something differently. Yeah, it's it's interesting, hey, because there's the qualitative, well, what's a few opinions, which can be a really fantastic source of insight. And then there's a quantitative, well, how did it actually perform in the business? And then, and then coming back, I mean, yeah, resurfacing previous campaigns or previous projects, looking historically at things, it, when you after a few years you'll go back to that and think about it completely differently um it, at least that's been my perspective anyway like previous projects or strategies that rolled out one example is actually i'm working with at the moment um, a strategy project we did for their uh, for a non-profit and it was to give them a number of initiatives around crm and data-driven marketing and really interestingly, but they spent a year implementing it. Now they've got all these fantastic insights. And so I'm talking with them and asking, well, what did you learn? Like what came out of that? Where can I do strategy better in that context of your business? But it's only with the hindsight that I'm asking those questions, um, Sydney, you know, the hindsight aspect is, I think is really helpful when it comes to formulating new ideas and yeah, the history will tell you a lot more about the future as well often. So um, really great. And I, I mean, just to, to um, finish on our last question here about, um, I guess you've worked with a number of really high profile brands, companies with the likes of Apple, also HBO Max. Um, but it's not, I was just working with those brands. It's also quite significant pro projects as well. So launching uh, Warner Media's flag flagship streaming service, HBO Max is 
the more recent example, but also the, the rollout of the new Apple Store, which was a dramatic shift in the experience of the Apple Store and a significant change in the marketplace for so many apps that are now billion-dollar brands. Um, so, you know, that all of those aspects, you know, are quite significant. And I guess for those of us who are playing at home, what has been your creative approach with both of those rollouts or those big projects? Where do we even start when approaching an initiative such as those? And how did you sort of think about how to launch, but also how to position it in the market as well? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a big question. <laughs> you know, I... I'm one of those people that very much espouses the idea of like, just start. Um, but I think that one of the things that I'm really good at is looking at very large, overwhelming tasks and breaking them down into smaller parts or single steps. At least that's how I approach everything in my life. And so I hope that I'm good at it. <laughs> but at Apple, you know, I was really focused on art direction and design. So it was really all about working and operating from brief to brief. And my approach was really, you know, quite well aligned to the, to what I was describing earlier. And Apple is all about innovation, as we know. So there is a healthy dose of experimentation and pitch work that goes into the creative process just within that company. But from a brand perspective, you don't really have the option of done is better than perfect there. You know, there's an expectation of excellence that comes with that brand and there's a rich heritage of incredible design and advertising that one has to honor when you're serving that sort of business. Um, so it's careful work. <laughs> this is kind of how I'll describe, you know, working at Apple. With HBO Max, it's, it's been a bit different, mostly because I'm more focused on the team holistically. So of course, we're still working on individual briefs and building campaigns, but I'm not as in the weeds with the work as I once was. Um, you know, though I often am the one saying, oh, this is the direction we should pursue. My goal is really to empower my team to be the ones that are kind of traversing in that messy exploratory space. I think a lot more now about our higher level creative strategy. How does the work we do in a given quarter or year ultimately affect the larger business goals? And, you know, what are the areas that we can have a bigger impact? We're also launching a much younger brand. HBO has a rich history of its own, of course, but we're, uh, we're a different animal than our legacy counterpart. It's more about cultivating this new identity and really defining who we are in the marketplace as a streamer. But like I said before, for me, it's about breaking down the big ask into smaller asks. In this case, the big ask is ultimately, what are we trying to do? Where do we want to go as a business? And then breaking that down into manageable steps, which then become you know, the roadmap. With these bigger initiatives that don't have a brief, maybe it's part of a five-year plan or something, I still always write down what the big ask is, even if it just ends up being a post-it on my monitor, because you always need something to map back to. Um, Otherwise, it's too easy to get lost. <laughs> and I'm not sure if that answered your question, but I hope that it did. No, it's, it certainly did. And I think it is quite interesting in that um, with any creative process, there is that sort of atomization of, um, of what you're actually trying to do. So breaking things down into all of its atomic elements and how they all work together, you know, that piece is just massive in itself. I and mean, when you're working with massive sort of complex brands with a whole bunch of different stakeholders and, and technology, you know, the atomization and 
the categorization of things is an extremely helpful step in starting some big ambitious initiatives. But as you mentioned, I mean, HBO Max, it is a younger brand. It's finding its differentiation. It's, you know, um, looking to grow and to scale rapidly, right? Very different scenario to Apple or if you worked at Amazon, you know? So I think that it's a very different way of thinking about it, perhaps more agile in, in how you may approach um, initiatives and projects. But I think, yeah, I, I agree that we, um, we often need to take a step back sometimes and go, well, what is the business trying to achieve here holistically and how do we align with that? Um, and often I see creative projects fall down where they don't have either the direction of senior leadership to make those decisions on where the brand is actually going um, or they have a lack of ability to translate that vision into creative work you know it's sort of both and um often um but uh, a quick question for you on that i mean how where do you see things falling down often on either side is it leadership or is it more the team interpreting what the leadership's trying to do and where do you see sort of the, the uh, things fall out um you know i think it happens on both sides we're all we're all human but ultimately we can only control ourselves right so you know as as someone who is part of the working machine, if leadership comes to you with an idea, whatever that idea is, or with, with their mandate, it's ultimately up to us to interpret how we do that. And so really thinking about why, why is it that leadership has come to me with this, this thought or this mandate? What is it that their goals are? What are they trying to achieve? And we don't always get to ask them those things. So it requires kind of careful observation as well. And using that kind of information to then craft what it is that the big ask is, right? And from there, you can start to compartmentalize that into smaller steps. I do find that a lot of times when I'm working with designers, they do get so focused on what their idea is. At the end of the day, it's it's very hard to let go of your creative ideas. They're, they're emotionally a part of you. You put yourself in them. So there is this constant exercise that we have to do when we're working creatively to separate ourselves from our ideas. So that way we're not getting too attached when things maybe aren't quite lining up to the original ask or the brief as much as they probably should. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's always a difficult one letting go of an idea or sacrificing it for something greater. But I think that is a mark of a very successful, not just a designer, but I think a creative thinker is the ability to go to toss something in the bin. And, you know, I think always what, especially with creative work, there's always the issue of the sunk cost fallacy as well. You know, we tend to often assign importance and value to things that are, um, that we've worked on for a period of time or we've invested a significant amount of money or capital into. And so we want to keep those things going because you've already invested so much, you know, and that's always working against us. But I think uh, what differentiates a great um, creative thinker is the ability to, to throw things away that don't make sense anymore. And to be realistic about that, no matter how much you've invested, I think that's a really important call out, Sydney. So, uh, so thank you for joining us on the uh, Making Sense of MarTech podcast. Uh, fantastic conversation, really insightful in look into how uh, you approach creativity with some of the biggest brands in the world. But where can we actually find you on the internet and connect? Oh, um, well, the pandemic has caused my social media commitment to, uh, you know, plummet to the ground. So LinkedIn is probably the best place to reach me if anyone is interested in connecting or furthering the conversation. 
Mm, great. Well, we are regularly interviewing people who are featured every week in the Martech Weekly newsletter. People like Sydney, who are at the forefront leading their industry and leading their craft. And we delve into topics that subscribers care about. So if you'd like to read and subscribe, you can head to themartechweekly.com.